with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, August the 4th, 2023. This is episode 3,351 of the Survival Podcast, and my Fridays are off on on numbers. Because they don't end in fives or zeros anymore because of one show from several months ago. And I ain't been able to get it back to work in the way that I want it since. I like my Fridays to head in zeros or fives. Because it just works out five shows a week. That's the way it should be. It ain't that big a deal. That's the very definition of a first world problem. What we're here to talk about today, though, are the things that you've been asking about from the expert panel. Uh, I have some great stuff from the Ron Paul Liberty highlights today. Dr. Paul will talk about bankrupting your own nation by trying to control every other nation. Dan McAdams will talk about another huge military spending bill while rejecting oversight on how our money is spent. Let's spend it. Don't worry about oversight. What the hell do we need oversight for? Chris Rossini will talk about how free markets are far superior to corporatism that we live under. Then we'll hear about real mowers, as in real, like spinning reels, not uh, real as in authentic. You know, that that mower's not real, right? We're not, don't mean it that way. From Tim Toolman Cook, he's got a couple options for you. And I actually agree with him saying you probably don't want one. And I'll, I'll have a little follow-up on why with that. Um, Nick Ferguson will talk about planting a living wind block slash dust fence. Jeff Lawton will talk about dealing with high pH and heavy clay soils. Joss the Renegade Butcher will talk about finding quality but affordable butcher and processing knives. Sean Mills will talk about solar with no battery backup or minimum battery backup. Does that ever make sense uh, in an off-grid scenario or where you want to function off-grid? And then I'm going to ask, answer a question I get a lot, and I've talked about this before, but always I think it's been on uh, Bitcoin breakout episodes, so I'm not going to bring the Bitcoin angle into it at all, other than it is a solution to the problem, whether you want to admit it or not, folks. Um, but what I've been asked a lot is, what's the big deal about a CD, CBDC, a central bank digital currency? Anyway, Jack, right now 95% of all transactions are already digital, uh, most of, I've had a lot of people say, you know, I don't really like the fact that stuff's traceable, but, you know, I pay my bills with online bill pay in my bank account. And even if I write a check, even though there's a paper check involved, there's still a digital transaction in the background. The government can look at my bank account, see everything in my bank account. So what is really the big deal about a CBDC, and what does it give them that they don't already have? Those of you who know the answer to that question already... You know how naive the question is, but we'll explain it because it's not really naive. Once you know the answer, it has the illusion of being a naive question. But when you don't know the answer, it's simply that you don't understand the technology that's being developed and what it's being developed to do. So we'll talk about that today uh, because you need to know this is coming. One way or another, this is coming, and it's coming all over the world. Europe is well ahead of the United States with it. 
Um, it's already in place in, in China. There is not a place where there won't be central bank digital currencies. And I will tell you today exactly what they do and how they will work and what they will enable from government. And then all you have to ask yourself is if government has a means of control, is it going to use it or will it just be benevolent and not use it? Okay? All right, with that, let's go ahead and hear from the Ron Paul team today. In order, you'll hear Dr. Paul, then you'll hear Dan McAdams with an assist by Dr. Paul, and then uh, bat and clean up for them as always, Chris Rossini. You know, uh, during the presidential campaigns that I participated in, it was always annoying to me because those who ran the uh, ran the debates always wanted to segregate economic policy and foreign policy. And my claim is you can't separate the two. You know, economic, bad economic policy leads to war, and war leads to more economic problems. And I think that's what we're facing today. Well, see, I remember very early in my career in Washington, they were voting for money. I think it was in uh, in Lebanon or someplace. I said, you know, I said, you're going to send send the money over there and spend all that money. Then you're going to have to spend money because those things will be turned against us. Well, that's tradition now. You buy all these weapons. Where did all the weapons go in Ukraine? But that's that's the reason you can't separate the two. It's what we need is we need liberty, we need freedom, we need economic understanding. And uh, believe me, people need more confidence. I think that's what hurts the most. People lack confidence. They figure we have to do it. I don't have I don't think I can do it. I mean, we, we have to do our own merit. And they've been taught that you only get ahead by describing and having somebody tell you how miserable you are and how inept you are and you need to hand out our money. So it's 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 pretty hard to have confidence in being free. But that is really one of the biggest obstacles we have right now. We're going to do our very best at the Liberty Report to continue to promote our liberty. Yeah, the one word that comes to mind when I think of this bill is sleepwalking, because they continue to go on pretending as if we're absolutely the top dog, our empire is unchallenged, spending a little bit more money will shore up our empire, and in the meantime, as we see now, increasingly, our weapons, our training, everything that we spend the money on that actually should defend us, we're seeing it fail before our eyes in Ukraine, and so you're wondering, where is this money going? What's happening to it? The other thing, and I'll put on that first one if you can, the other thing about this that struck me is it's so classic D.C. Because you remember, we talked about it on this show, the big deal about the budget uh, you know, ceiling, the spending ceiling, all this and that. Well, the debt ceiling deal, okay? That was going to really save us. So even though this bill authorizes a record $886 billion in military spending, well, that's okay because that was the agreement set in the debt ceiling talks, 886, so that within that, but as Dave DeCamp points out from antiwar.com, this is the this is the little loophole, Dr. Paul. Hawks in Congress, and that would be both parties, are planning to increase that figure even more by passing, quote, emergency supplemental funding, which is not limited by the debt ceiling deal. And you would say, absolutely. I mean, if we're in an emergency, who can deny them funding? Who can count how many emergencies there are? There's always going to be one, and that's why that whole 
debate, pseudo-debate, had very little meaning. Yeah. We uh, would rather take our advice from the very many implications of what were at least stated, uh, you know, in the Constitution and by the founders, because the advice was very strong. Stay out of entangling alliances. Well, we haven't taken very good advice on that, and we've been, uh, you know, at this up at this attitude of having an empire and its endless spending. There is no perfection in political systems. Every single combination you could think of has been tried, whether it be dictatorship or democracy or kings and dukes, and everything has been tried. Communism, socialism. Uh, there's no perfection because people are imperfect. We we will not create a perfect political system and because we are creative you know so the bad guys are always scheming on ways to enslave us and we're always trying to figure out how to keep us keep them off our backs what you want though if you're going to do this is the right incentive structure and the free market we believe has the right incentive structure as imperfect as a free market is because it's made up of imperfect people at least the incentives are there for entrepreneurs to risk their own capital, to satisfy consumers in the, the most efficient and profitable way. And when they succeed, they're rewarded with profits. And when they fail, they lose their capital, their money, and the money and capital flows to those who are satisfying consumers. Under corporatism, it's the opposite. They risk taxpayer money. They want government contracts. And if they lose, so what? It's not their money, it's taxpayer money. They will perhaps get a taxpayer bailout if they're lobby good, well enough and claim that they're too big to fail. So the incentives for uh, crony corporatism is not consumers. Their incentives is politicians, you know, and their product doesn't even have to work. The vaccines are a perfect example of that. You know, in a free market, those companies would be bankrupt by now. But in corporatism, not only does nobody get punished, they're exempt. Everybody's exempt. You know, and the same is with military contractors. Uh, they don't have to help humanity do anything beneficial to humanity. It's all destruction. And if the tanks get blown up, they'll just make more tanks on our dollar, and, and that's it. So the free market, the incentives are in the right order. And that's why it's a far superior system, you know, as imperfect as it is, because people are people, it's much, much better than the crony corporatism that we have today. You know, the, the, some of the stuff that they talked about today really hits on what I find to be the most frustrating thing that government does, in my opinion. I hate that they tax us at all. I consider all tax theft. You guys know that. But I also am a pragmatist and accept that we live in a system that's based on taxation. Uh, I know that they waste plenty of money, but the idea that they can just come up with these numbers as though somebody just fabricated a number with no idea exactly what the money is going to be spent on, appropriate billions, if not trillions of dollars to their little programs, and then have no real oversight as though a congressional committee is oversight. I've seen some of the congressional committees lately grilling people from all these different departments about where the money went. Millions, tens, hundreds of millions in some cases of dollars gone. And you see the Congress do it, I guess the best they can, I'll give the clowns a little credit, going, where are the monies? We don't know. We'll find it. When? Because it's been missing a long time. Did anybody get fired over this? Uh, no, or uh, we took proper action. Okay, well, what is that? Did anybody get fired? Well, you know, we took proper action. The answer then is no. 
So these people misallocate, and, and that's a nice way of saying commit fraud, with billions of dollars, or just lose it with billions of dollars. Can't answer where it is, who did it, who's responsible, and nobody gets fired. This is one of the ways that the United States government is so different from what it actually is because it's in the public sector where it can steal money. The United States government is a corporation. But it's certainly not run like any actual corporation in the real world. I promise you, if you work for a, 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 a company in, in, in the private sector, and you're the head of a department, and that department loses half a million dollars, you are so fired. And if you're not, you better have figured out who did it and how it happened on your watch and why the person that did it is actually a criminal, and you better have been the one to find it first, and you better bring it to your company, and that person's not just fired, they're going to prison. But not in government, no, 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 no. I've heard excuses like, well, it's possibly that all the money's really there, we just filled the form out wrong. Well, where's the form? Where is it? They don't know. And we said, and this is our own internal money, that's bad enough, we send all this money to Ukraine, there's no accountability. There's no audit of where that money went. We know some of that money went to actually pay for pension funds for employees of the Ukraine government. They were honest about that. They actually told us that they did that. We know that almost $6 billion that went to Ukraine wasn't supposed to go to Ukraine, and we don't know what the hell happened to it. We have no... We, we don't know. Anyway, that's the story. Maybe 10% went to the big guy. Who knows? That's $600 million. That's real money. And so this is why when I hear all these arguments about we need more funding for this, we need more funding for that, you need no more funding for anything until we can know where this money goes. Even if I, if I take this like the uh, devil's advocate and I say, like if I'm going to pretend that I actually believe government can work, then that's where we have to start. Every single penny must be accounted for in real time. There's plenty of technology that would do it. And no money should be appropriated to fund anything without knowing exactly what it's going to be spent on. And then I'll just add, no spending bill should be more than about 10 pages long. If you want to build a bridge, then you submit to build a bridge. You want to build some roads, you submit to build some roads. You want to pass a law that redefines what a financial relationship is. You don't bury it in 6,000 pages called the Patriot Act. You don't get to do that. This is why I don't participate in this system of government, because I don't live in the, the neighborhood of make-believe, boys and girls. I don't, right before I do this show, play a song for you and sing poorly and change my shoes to slippers. This is not the neighborhood of make-believe. This is not Mr. Rogers. This is the real world. They steal money, they lose money, and no one ever is held accountable for being wrong, losing money, misspending money. Nobody gets fired. Nobody gets disciplined. Nothing happens. And this is the most important part of my rant on this. It's never gonna change. Quoting the Bible, which is unusual for me, but sometimes that's where the best quotes are from. When I was a child, I played with childish things. But now as a man, I put away childish things. Put away the childish things. We're not going to hold them accountable. We're not going to hold their feet to the fire. Nobody's going to pay for this. 
until America grows up and accepts that's where we are. If there is any chance of rehabbing the system, then like an addict, we must admit that we have not yet hit bottom and accepted the problem as it is. Because as long as you believe the current system can be rehabbed without changing every single component to it, then you are still playing with childish things. Anyway, let's go on to something a little more practical. You got a small lawn, ain't that big, you don't like noise, you want to be environmentally conscious, well, get a real mower. What's a real mower? Remember, leave it to Beaver when they would push the thing? Yeah, like that. Here we go from Tim, a tool man cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another expert counsel segment for you, so let's dive right in. This week's question comes from Robert. He says, hey Jack, this question's for Tim the Toolman. Tim, would you please recommend an old school push style grass mower? We have a smooth front and lumpy back lawn. I suspect the landscaper slapped down some rolls of sod over the hard clay that our ground is made of. So are there parallel ruts where I suspect the rolls were? Anyway, I'd like to cut the lawn, leave the grass on the lawn, not use gas, extension cords, or hassles with batteries. It'd be nice if it didn't cost a fortune, but I'm willing to pay more for quality. Best regards, Robert. Well, I wouldn't wish a real mower on my worst enemy, but I'm just giving you a hard time, Robert. If that's what you want... I'll give you a recommendation. First off, I got to tell you, my experience with real mowers was horrible. When we first moved to Alberta, the place we rented before we bought something included a mower, and it was an old real mower. And if I let it get anything more than, I don't know, half an inch taller than could handle, that thing would gum up all the time. Now, it was a cheap, kind of generic one from Canadian Tire here in Canada, but I will tell you, I definitely learned to make sure you cut it regularly and do not let it get out of hand. They also work really well on smooth surfaces, not as well on rough surfaces. That's what has me a little concerned for what you want. Now, that was the only experience I had with a reel-to-reel. So a place I like to check, everybody else out there so you know, when I'm looking for a good quality tool or a buy-it-for-life item, I use Reddit quite a bit. And there is a subreddit, a forum on there called buy it for life and they have a ton of good recommendations i've bought can openers and all kinds of other things off there but everybody on there seems to really love the fiskers and it's not actually that expensive they have uh, right now what fiskers has and everybody on here says it pushes really well pushes easy cuts really sharp and reading around on other forums that seems to be the way to go but right now Fiskers has one called a Stay Sharp Max Reel Mower, 18 inches wide. It's got small wheels in the front, makes it a little easier to push, just under $300. They also have a smaller version called the Stay Sharp Reel Mower, and it's $225. Uh, they also have, and that Stay Sharp has a cover on it, so it'll actually put the grass to the bottom as opposed to shooting it out the front. So your whatever, whatever your concern is, whatever you want to do. Uh, you can buy special sharpening kits for them. And they even have a little grass catcher that you can install on it for $73, and it will help pick it up. Now, you don't need that, so whatever. That's the recommendation for a real mower. I would love <laughs> to talk you out of a real mower. Now, I get it. You don't want gas. Totally understand, because gas is nasty. Winterizing it, it just, it's a real pain. There's so many things that can go wrong. I understand. 
I also understand electric because we used an electric with an extension cord for a couple of years after we moved out here. And I hated it because I had to get really good at repairing extension cords. It's just what happened. Never a good thing. I understand. But I know you also said you don't want to hassle with batteries. But I got to tell you, between you and me and everyone else listening, I love, and you guys know this, DeWalt. But no, I love battery-powered mowers. I have been running the DeWalt battery-powered. comes with two 10-amp-hour, 20-volt batteries for three summers now on the same batteries. And it gets in the ballpark of 60-ish minutes of runtime, which is a ton of runtime. Because, of course, every time you go to turn it around, you just take your hand off it. You don't realize how much mowing you can get done. has way more power, and it honestly, in my mind, is going to keep you from swearing as much. Now, here's the thing. You know, if it's an environmental issue... I mean, you can charge your batteries with solar power like I do in the garage. Um, if it's a, you just think you're not going to get the runtime that you want, I'm telling you, check out the battery. Now, is it a little bit more money? It can be. But there's other ones out there. Ryobi makes a good one. Milwaukee makes a good one. Just take a minute and compare because unless you're just doing golf greens every day, those real mowers are going to be a real pain. And with all those extra divots and ruts, I don't know. My recommendation would be at least consider battery, especially if you already have a battery ecosystem. If you do, take a minute and look, because you may be able to buy just the bare tool for not much more than what these Max Real mowers are going for. So, I hope it helps. I didn't want to talk you out of it, but I got to tell you, man, I just think you're asking for trouble trying to use one of those Real mowers on anything but something like a fairway or a golf green. I'll give the links to Jack for both these mowers. They don't seem to be available on Amazon for some reason. Uh, they are on Lowe's and Fiskars, so that'll be in there. So I hope that helps. Guys, keep the questions coming to me. I absolutely love them. Always love getting them in the inbox. Send them along. I'll get them answered up to you. We'll knock a bunch out for you, and they'll be there. If you want to know more about how to support me, toolmantim.co. And if you're looking for more listening content, uh, check out workshop radio we recently rebranded workshop the workshop podcast on episode 300 to workshop radio the idea is kind of an old-fashioned talk radio vibe where i have people by we chat about things and uh, everybody tells their story so anyway i appreciate you guys and as always stay happy stay healthy and have a great week so the only thing i'm not completely clear on here is how big this lawn is because this is how i feel about it if you have a lawn that's like, you know, we had a lot of these things we called row houses or half doubles where I grew up in Pennsylvania, and a lot of times the lawn would be, there wouldn't even really be a front lawn. It would be this little tiny, like, nature strip and then a sidewalk. And then the backyard would be probably about the size of my office that I'm sitting in right now times two in square footage. And honestly, a lot of people with houses like that used exactly one of these real mowers. And I looked at the ones that Tim mentioned, and, and, and these are much better than what they used, and it worked fine. And it worked fine because it was no big deal to maybe push the lawnmower around once a week in the growing season. Uh, it didn't take very long to do. It was certainly a better option than a gas mower in that situation. They're really noisy. You've got houses all around you. You're dealing with this mechanical thing that can break down, etc. Uh, so if it's a small, small, small lot like that, 
If it's something you can do with a real mower in 10 minutes or less, then maybe you do want to do this. If it's a little bit bigger and you're aminent on not wanting a gas mower, then I think one of these uh, cordless battery-powered mowers is a great idea. Now, I will say that the DeWalt ones are significantly more expensive than a real mower. Significantly so. There are some other brands. Uh, there's one green something or whatever. It's actually pretty well thought of um, that work pretty well for a smaller yard. But I am big on remaining in a single battery ecosystem when possible. I trust DeWalt. I love my DeWalt trimmer, uh, my, my, my hedge, not hedge trimmer, uh, uh, weed whacker, basically. It works great. I have no reason to believe that their lawnmower wouldn't be fantastic. So in the show notes, I have the two mowers that Tim mentioned on the Fiskers website, so you can look them up. And I have the DeWalt mower. I have both of them. They have one that is actually self-propelled, which I'm sure affects battery life, but it's nice. Uh, and there's one that you just have it's it's it, you just have to push, and the push one's like 150 bucks less. What I'll say about the push one, if it's a fairly small yard, it's not a big deal, um, and it it's it's again it's going to cost less, it's going to get more runtime, uh, so those are good things, and it wouldn't be that big of a deal to push it. It also has one less moving part, or actually one less moving system. There's no drive to the wheels, so there's less to go wrong across time. Just my thoughts on it. Moving on, let's hear about planting a wind uh, block or dust fence as a living fence. Hey there, Nick Ferguson here with an expert counsel answer for Paul on a dust reduction fence. And he asks, what type of fast-growing plants would be best for this situation? We have a flower and lavender farm in northeast Missouri. The lavender bed is 30 feet from a gravel road. No other option would like to build, plant a living fence to reduce the dust on the plants. The dust is the main concern, not livestock. Would also like to act as a wind block in winter. The fence would run east to west for 250 feet on the north side and 100 foot on the east side of the field. Water is not an issue. We have our own well and can irrigate. Thank you, Paul. Titus Creek Flowers and Lavender. All right, Paul. I'm going to go with the tried and true answer, one of the best for this type of situation, and my go-to is hybrid willow for this kind of scenario. Now, if you wanted something that's going to help block the wind in the winter, you're going to need a whole lot more space, and that's why I'm saying I would just go with just the willow. And what you could do is you could plant several rows of it and then just alternate the the maintenance and cutting down the coppicing every other year so that you end up with some growth that's still vertical uh, blocking wind in the winter. It grows ex- insanely fast. It's easy to manage, and you can make thousands of trees from your fence line to build it out thicker if you need more blockage without paying a cent for a tree in the future. You'll just need some irrigation to keep them growing healthy and happy, but it sounds like that's not a problem. Super easy answer. You can always start with just a few trees and then harvest everything in the winter. Cut the trimmed portion up into four inch to eight inch sticks and push them in the ground in a row or two. And you can keep repeating that process until you have enough to block the dust. Or, you know, in one year you could shell out for a few hundred trees and mass plant the area. I'd go with one tree 
or cutting every foot at minimum, but you could pack them in every six inches. With fertilizing and irrigation, you should expect to see them get about eight feet tall in the first year, and if coppiced, they should shoot up to about 12 foot tall in the next year. That's what I've seen with my trees here in Louisiana. Um, I'll have rooted cuttings for sale hopefully this fall for those of you interested. Um, if not this fall, then I'll have them up for sale January 1st, 2024. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and Rare Plant Store. Do good things. Well, we're in the world of permaculture, so let's stick with that for one more segment anyway. And let's hear from Jeff Lawton on dealing with a high pH and heavy clay soil. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And um, I have a question here with someone who has uh, high pH uh, on the alkaline side with heavy clay, plus um, a foot of snow as the most precipitation. So uh, I'm not sure exactly where it is, but it sounds like it's a high, dry desert area. And um, they're adding, they've got low garden beds that seem impervious to compost um, and they want to try and get a pH that's closer to neutral or even slightly on the acid side Um, and they want it to be sustainable without continuously adding uh, sulfur to bring the alkaline clay down in in pH and I think the water is also alkaline. So um, what you're going to have to do here is you're going to have to open up the soil you're going to have to aerate that soil. On a larger area, it means um, deep ripping. You could even do it with bulldozers if you want to do it rough style. We're going to have to open that soil up to the air and allow the worms to do their work. And they can't do their work while it's all heavily compacted. Um, So if you open up on the broad area with ripping, whether it's really rough with bulldozers or it's more refined with chisel plows or even yeoman's plows. It's a matter of area in that soil. I usually just go directly on contour. I don't make a fuss about falling off contour too much. Um, It's um, just a matter of getting water to stop and soak into those rip lines and then you, you, you can get a cover crop going and the main reason the cover crop is partially to structure the soil but to feed the worms organic matter to get the worm population going and, and the assistance you're giving them is organic matter with the cover crop and the physical structure in the soil with rip lines. Now in your garden you can do that in a more refined way of course because it's a smaller area and the compost is not working because it's not getting into that Uh, anaerobic clay and it's not able to the organisms in the compost are not able to uh, change the pH for you because they structurally can't get in there quickly so get a broad fork and um, and use a broad fork in a small smaller area and open up the soil crack it open I don't mean turn it over like a moldboard plow I mean just actually dig get it moisture levels right and get your broad fork, wiggle it down, stand on it and wiggle it back and forwards till it goes right to the full depth. Then lean back on it and crack the soil. See if you can just slightly lift the section. Move back eight inches or so and do it again and do it again right across the bed and crack it and spike it and crack it open a bit and allow your compost to actually wiggle down and, and, and run down inside all those cracks. 
Get air into that soil physically as quickly as you can and get your compost down into that soil and get those organisms working in the structured, opened up structure. Use lots of organic matter. Once you've got your compost on, use lots of good organic matter as your, as your top mulch. And even use like high nitrogen, like, like alfalfa mulch and then basic straw mulch and then a layer of alfalfa mulch and then straw mulch and then alfalfa mulch and then straw mulch and don't worry about putting some compost worms in there because the manure of compost worms actually feeds your bigger is food for your larger earthworms which need lots of beneficial microorganisms in the soil for them to be happy and living in that situation when you get a lot of worms in your garden it means you must have a massive amount of beneficial organisms that's what you need in this situation. You need to speed the process up because it will happen over time But if, if you're willing to wait, but you want a result. So physically decompact uh, the soil by structuring it with rip lines or broad forks in a smaller area and cover crop, compost, mulches. Out on your treed area, you need leguminous trees, support species trees that can do the ripping for you and can physically rip first and then plant good support species that don't mind getting into that hard clay and breaking it up for you over time and then as they grow you can start to use them as your chop and drop mulch supply that's the way to do it and um, should work fine but it's uh, a matter of speeding up the physical structuring and life enhancing processes of that soil to get it where you want it to go there you go my only addition to that is in your cover crop there are two plants that i would specifically use in this situation one would be daikon radish because they are a deep penetrating taproot and they will penetrate hard pan clay like nothing they are super tough when i've planted them in places with rock they get down to that rock. They can't penetrate the rock, but they, they grow so aggressively, they start growing vertically up out of the ground. Uh, and you can tell that when you pull one out, the deformed nature of the bottom, it gave it hell trying to get through that rock. So clay, anytime I've planted them in clay, once you've done the work Jeff's talking about, you can't just throw it out there and expect to do it all by itself. Um, but they are great at that. And then I would... The, the daikon, I would cut the tops off after they're fully mature, and I would leave most of them in the ground. If you want to pick a few to eat or ferment or something, that's fine. But mostly I would just use them as a straight-up cover crop. And if you want to take a yield off them, the best thing to take is the seed pods when they're young, and they are delicious stir-fryer and salads. The other one, and it's kind of along the same lines of putting massive amounts of matter in the soil that will decompose and leave pockets for your worms is purple top turnip and we are i know it's blazing hot but we are heading into fall rather quickly and that would be a great fall crop uh along with something like winter pea uh so then you've got your nitrogen fixer and any other winter crops that you want to include and a great cheap uh winter crop not really a crop but a winter cover uh crop and uh something to put a lot of organic matter in the soil and leave you with a tremendous amount of mulch for spring is ryegrass. And you can buy like a 50-pound bag of ryegrass at like Tractor Supply for like 25, 30 bucks. They probably don't have it sitting out front right now, 
but in another month or so, every tractor supply, Atwoods, farm store, whatever, you have big bags of ryegrass seed, stupid cheap sitting out there. It's an annual. It doesn't do really well reseeding in most climates, so it goes away. And if you chop and drop it, it makes wonderful mulch, and then you know the source of your mulch. So that would just be my addition to this, those particular items. And then everything else Jeff said, and the, the br- cracking the ground open is critical. I would start working on that as soon as possible. Moving on, let's talk about knives with Patrick Rupp. No, 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 no. Processing knives with Josh the Renegade Butcher. Hey there, TSP community. It's Josh the Renegade Butcher coming back to you again with another answer for the Expert Council. This time we have Lucas writes in and says, Jack, I have a question on sorcering butchery knives for the Renegade Butcher. I would like to find some quality knives for processing animals that won't break the bank. I currently have an Outdoor Edge game processing kit that we use mainly for ducks and chickens, but we're wanting to progress to processing our own large animals as well. What are the must-have knives or tools for this, and what are some reputable brands to look at? Thanks, Lucas. All right, well, a couple things on that. First off, it depends. (laughs) That's always the answer, but it does depend a lot on personal preference and really how much you want to get involved. Uh, what sort of animals you're doing, how uh, how big you want to get. If you're just looking to start processing, uh, if you've got a good set of kitchen knives, you probably are good to go. However, if you are going to be doing this uh, regularly, I would recommend getting a, a good set of uh, knives specifically for butchery and uh, and keeping keeping up with them. You can really go two ways with this. You can go with something that's really high quality, uh, a carbon steel that uh, is going to be a little bit more maintenance, but it's probably going to be a better knife for you in the long run. Uh, and if you're doing a few large animals a year, I think that's a great choice, uh, especially if you really want to get into maintaining those knives. Uh, you could even uh, look into some custom knives made by someone like uh, Patrick over at MT Knives, or you could go the route that most guys that uh, process like myself do, and we'll get uh, commercial stainless steel knives. They uh, are a little bit harder to sharpen. They typically don't hold quite as much of an edge, but they also are not nearly as prone to rust, and uh, they'll hold up to the abuse of uh, day-to-day use in a shop a little bit better. So, And for the most part, there are some decent ones that are fairly affordable. Victorinox used to be kind of the gold standard. Um, they're still good, but they've switched their manufacturing from being in, uh, in Germany to uh, Chinese steel now. And while they're not horrible, I mean... Every once in a while, you do get a dud. They're not the best in the world. However, they are they're pretty affordable. On average, you're going to spend $20 to $30 per knife. Um, that's going to really depend on the size of the knife and it's uh, how specialized it is. Uh, as far as the types of knives that you're going to need, if you're moving beyond just doing poultry, I would recommend a good boning knife. Now, that's going to be uh, personal preference. Some people like one with a slight curve. Some people like them straight. I'm a straight uh, boning knife guy. Uh, some people uh, like a little bit of a flex, not quite as much as like a fillet knife, which can make a good bony knife, mind you. Uh, and some people like them uh, with some uh, full stiffness to them. Um, I prefer a semi-flex for most things, but not super floppy. Uh, you're going to want something larger, like a breaking knife or a scimitar-style knife, or even just a large butcher knife. The scimitar-style or breaking knives, as they're often called, have a little bit more of a point to them, so they're easier uh, to get into joints and uh, between ribs and things if you're breaking beef. 
I prefer them for that, and they'll do most of your, your heavy steak slicing and stuff as well. Uh, as far as the skinning goes, you can get by with uh, any of your other knives, a good buck knife, but if you're going to be doing it very often, a decent beef skinning knife is not a bad way to go. Uh, all in all, you could probably get you a good set of Victorinox or Dexter Russells, which is also another very good brand. Uh, you can find those all on Amazon as well. I'm going to send some links over to Jack, and uh, if he wants to post those in the show notes, that'd be awesome. But you can you can search for any of these. And uh, you could probably get a good set for under $100, I would imagine. Another way to go, uh, and I've recently started to explore this brand. I tried it. I, I, I'll buy a knife from one particular manufacturer every once in a while, just on a fluke to test it out. And I've been very pleased with this. I did not realize until a few years ago that Cold Steel actually started a commercial line designed specifically for commercial processing. And uh, I, I've actually really liked the, uh, the six-inch uh, stiff boning knife that I've got from them. Uh, so much so that I've actually bought two more. Uh, the, it holds an edge better than my Victorinox. It's a little bit deeper of a blade. Uh, it's a little bit stiffer, but it's still got a good flex to it. And the grip is a bit larger and more textured, which fits my hand very well. Um, of course, that's personal preference. You won't know what you do like until you have it in your hand. If you can go somewhere, uh, say somewhere that sells commercial uh, kitchen supplies and be able to actually hold the knife, that's great. Uh, generally helps a little bit to get the feel of it in your hand. I think uh, if you have, if you don't have small hands, the commercial line seems to be, the commercial line of cold steel seems to be a good choice. I have not tried their other knives yet. Now, I have ordered one of their scimitar-style breaking knives. Um, I should be having that in this week, and my plan is either this week or probably next week on the podcast when I get a little bit more chance to use it on some, some large beef, I'm going to put it through the ringer, and I'm going to try to give you guys an honest uh, an honest opinion on that, too. So I just so happened to have ordered that uh, right before I got the email from Jack. So good timing. Stay tuned, listen into the Renegade Butcher Show, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have a little bit more information there to uh, fill you in on that particular model. Another, if you want to go towards the, uh, the carbon steel route... Um, and you don't mind doing a little bit more maintenance, but you still want a decent set of knives that's not going to break the bank. If you can find some uh, some old hickory, a lot of times they've got wooden handles. Sometimes you may want to do a little sanding and reshape and refinish those handles to fit your hand, but the steel on those is phenomenal, um, especially if you put a blued finish on them or an, uh, like a vinegar-style blued finish. Man, it's hard to beat. I've got one of those that's... Uh, a large, I think a 16-inch butcher knife from one of them. Uh, and they, you can't hardly dull the thing. Uh, it's like a giant machete, but for any really large steaks, like cutting uh, round steaks, I love breaking that thing out. Now, you did ask what other tools would be useful. That uh, <laughs> That's a whole nother ball game. However, I would recommend getting at least some decent meat hooks. A lot of times you'll see folks call them hay hooks, but it's basically... Uh, you're going to have like a T-shaped handle and a hook that comes out between your fingers. Uh, that's really good for handling large sections of meat, uh, especially when you're moving them over a distance and you don't want to uh, have them slip out of your hands or you're trying to keep your hands clean, especially when you're trying to transport them from slaughter to uh, a cooler and or from the cooler to your workspace. Uh, you want a decent cutting board, something large, something that's going to do the job. 
give you lots of space to work in. You're going to want some good clean tubs. Um, I recommend if you can find a sporting goods store nearby. Uh, here in the south, we've got the Academy Sporting Goods. And if you go to their uh, processing section where they sell wild game processing stuff, they've actually got some tubs that are way cheaper than the commercial ones you can buy. They usually run 7 to $10 a piece. Uh, and get them before deer season because they go quickly. Uh, usually folks like me will buy them up because we do need them and we go through them. Uh, as far as the slaughter side goes, you if you're doing something large, like very large pigs or cattle at all, you're going to want to have a tractor or some heavy equipment handy if possible. You can get by other ways. You could use a chain hoist. You could have a good size electric hoist and a gambrel set up. But for most folks, the easiest way to do it is going to be with a tractor that has a loader, a skid steer, bobcat, something like that. If you don't have one, find out if you can borrow one from a neighbor's, or maybe you could rent one for a weekend. Uh, you're also going to need a way to cool this meat to chill it down. Um, I wouldn't recommend someone jump into just hot cutting the meat uh, and, and trying to learn all the finished cuts right away on a large animal unless you've actually gone through it. Uh, it's uh, It's a big job. And you're going to struggle just to get through it. You're not going to learn much if you don't have the ability to take your time. Uh, it's a big job for one guy if you know what you're doing to process a beef. So I would highly recommend get a hold of somebody who does know what they're doing or has been through the process at least once before and get them involved, if at all possible, the first go around. Um, try to have either a walk-in cooler or something else similar, you can get by with uh, some temperature regulators on some decent chest freezers. Uh, if you need some pointers on that, reach out to me and I can give you a little bit more of a detailed walkthrough on how to set some of that stuff up. Airflow does matter, so that is important. Uh, but uh, I don't know if I have time to really get into that full process here on the answering of this question, but those are the big things I think that most people will miss. Um, as far as saws go, uh, a decent single-hand reciprocating saw is a game-changer when it comes to doing breakdowns, especially if you want any kind of bone-in cuts, and get some really good, clean, sharp reciprocating saw blades. Um, they do sell some stainless steel ones on Amazon. Most of them are not very high quality. I actually really do enjoy the Lennox brand, uh, Lennox, L-E-N-N-O-X, uh, they sell them at uh, Lowe's. You can't find them at Home Depot or anywhere else. While I love Diablo blades, for some reason, the Lennox Extra Sharp bimetal blades, they work excellent on bone. They're a finer cut than anything else I've found, and they hold that edge. They do great for splitting beef. They do great for bone-in cuts. So worth getting. And that single-handed reciprocating saw, uh, it balances well in the hand, almost like a large electric fillet knife. So... Uh, yeah, I can actually do the majority of a breakdown on beef with just that and uh, a good knife. Anyways, I hope this answered some questions for you, Lucas. If you have any more questions or need any more details, feel free to reach out to me over at uh, renegadebutcher.com, josh at renegadebutcher.com. Find me over in my Telegram chat, t.me slash chat, or hook up with me on Noster or anywhere else you find me on social media. All right, guys. Hope you guys all have a wonderful day. We will catch up with you guys soon. And like I like to say, keep your uh, knives sharp, keep your mind sharper. This would actually be a really great topic for a, a show in of itself, and maybe one I have Josh on for, maybe one I just do myself. Um, I think Josh would be better for people that want to like butcher large 
uh, animals uh, all the way through. So, like when he talks about a, a breaking knife, that's more you know, breaking down a, a side of beef or something like that. Not that there's no other uses for them, but that's generally what you're looking at. Um, I will throw a few things out about some of the knives that he mentioned in my opinions. He didn't send me any links, so I have more general links to just the brands on Amazon for you. First of all, I agree with the Dexter, uh, the Dexter Russell. Also, just just most people just call them Dexter knives, I guess, because of the whole TV show and whatever. But um, the Dexter Russell knives, in my opinion, for a low price point are probably the most functional and best knife on the market for things like processing meat and fish and things like that. I, I think they are a, an outstanding value. I don't think they're the best knives in the world. I think they are one of the best values for knives out there. Uh, Ontario Knife Company is the company that makes the Old Hickory knives. And old, I agree with the Old Hickory stuff too. And there's your carbon steel. I think they are fantastic uh, butcher's knife, processor's knife, etc. Uh, I also agree that if you're going to be working frequently with carbon steel, that bluing or patinaing that knife is a good way to go. You have a couple options. One thing you can do is purchase a product like uh, Perma Blue, uh, made by Birchwood Casey. Some people freak out about that a little bit because it's a chemical. It's going to get in my food. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Basically, bluing is a process of a specific type of oxidation or rusting. And once that knife is done being blued and cleaned, you, you don't have to worry about chemicals. It would be like worrying you touched your gun that's blued and you got chemicals in your skin. I mean, uh, I wouldn't worry about it as much as most people do. But I also will tell you that using vinegar to do a patina works just as well, in my opinion. I don't think it looks as good, but I think it works just as well. Uh, you can also play around with doing things like there's a lot of mustard or a lot of vinegar in mustard, and it's more like a paste. So, like a thick mustard spread all over the blade of a, of a knife like this will do a really great job of the patina. And it also, like, if you use like a seedy mustard or whatever, to kind of make it look kind of cool. Uh, so I, I definitely recommend that if you're going to go with a carbon steel, I have to say for for small fine work. Um, I don't have a link to these, but the good old school, like Mora number twos, are great knives for that. I don't talk about them as much as I used to because they're just not the value they used to be. I mean, they're still made just as well as they always were, but the price on them has pretty much 3x in the last five years. So you used to be able to pick up a Mora number two for like 11 bucks, and they're like over 30 now. So I think they're a good knife. I don't know that they're a great value at 30 bucks, though. Um, some bushcrafters and what have you would, would disagree with me. But I have a ton of them because I bought a lot of them when they were cheap. And uh, it, you, know, you sharpen them, and they are beautiful for deboning and things like that of smaller cuts. Finally, less a processing knife, but to me one of the most beautiful factory-made knives you can get that's at a middle price point, 100 to $200 a knife, depending on what you're buying, uh, is, made, is Shun. I think Shun makes fantastic knives for the money. Uh, they're beautiful and they're functional, and I own quite a few Shun knives. And uh, while I, it's not something I'm going to pick up and go skin a deer with, when it comes to like cutting steaks and things like that, uh, they are fantastic along with being good kitchen knives as a whole. So I have links to all of those in the show notes today. Now let's hear about solar 
without batteries, off-grid, sort of, kind of, from Sean Mills. Hey everyone, it's Sean Mills with Hack My Homestead, and I've got an expert counsel question from Eric. Eric says, is it ever practical to have an off-grid home solar system without a battery if the demand for electricity is light and can be intermittent? Or how small of a battery system is sufficient for a home's critical systems? My goals for solar are primarily to have a grid tie system, but in the event that the grid is down, I would want to use only for critical systems off-grid, primarily fresh air exchange in a heat recovery unit, and secondarily emergency lighting, a circuit for charging phones, power to freezers, etc. I'm currently designing a passive house home for my property in southwest Ohio, which will have a masonry heater fed from the garage, to provide the bulk of the heating for winter as well as a solar aspect to the south. Passive House, if not familiar, is super insulated and super airtight such that it needs forced air ventilation to be healthy but is very energy efficient to keep fuel needs low and accept intermittent heating input. Yeah, so uh, to answer your question, Eric, it's never practical to have an off-grid system with no battery. Uh, the problem with that is that the, you're limited to solar generation and only the amount of solar that is being generated at any given moment. So even on a very sunny day, a wisp of cloud over the sun uh, can drastically reduce the amount of generation you're getting. So imagine your freezer compressor being on and your fans on for moving air throughout the house and a cloud literally shuts your whole system down. Not because your generation goes to nothing, but because it goes down far enough to where those items can't continue to run. If you have a battery, even if you only have five or 10 minutes of cloud cover, that battery can produce excess or can, can basically fill the gap between what your panels are producing and what your system needs, as well as provide a place to store energy when you have a, uh, smaller amount of load than you have generation. So I never tell anyone the only reason to ever have a batteryless system is if you are literally only putting the system in to harvest tax credits and have uh, your meter run backwards. So you need to live in a place where you have good tax credits in addition to the federal tax credits, as well as a really strong net metering program, which, by the way, they can just cancel whenever they want to or adjust. Ask the Californians about that one. So uh, I would say never go with no battery in, in that type of system. But you could go with a very small battery, like a single lithium iron phosphate battery or a very small bank of flooded lead acid batteries. That would be reasonable for the amount of loads you're talking about. For those that don't know, um, as Eric mentioned in his email, the passive health house system is kind of like lead certification, but for a residence and it primarily focuses on continuous insulation. So there's no gaps in insulation. You have to make your walls thick enough to where the lumber that supports the outside wall and the lumber that supports the inside wall are not continuous so that you can actually have insulation in between those. Um, that means that your windows are double or, or triple paned. Your window frames are insulated. Um, you have an airtight building. There's no thermal bridges, so there's no way for outside heat to transfer to the inside or vice versa uh, through a thermal bridge. 
you're only allowed to have 0.6 air changes per hour and you test that with a blower test once your building envelope is complete. Uh, the windows and doors have to be designed to minimize heat transfer um, and it's based on a ventilation and heat recovery. So because it's so airtight in order to prevent the air from becoming stale, uh, you do have to have scheduled air changes and you have to have that system kind of running uh, 24 seven. And so you want to get fresh air in and stale air out and you want to extract the heat from that air on its way into a building that's being cooled. Um, or you want to extract the heat from the interior of the building on its way out uh, if you're heating. So there's a lot of different heat exchanger and, and strategy around this. It's a fantastic um, process. It's, it's a great idea to build a house using passive house technology and, and, and principles if you're building from scratch. It's not a good idea to try to retrofit a house. Uh, I've talked to several people who have tried to take a standard built house and retrofit it and it just it doesn't work very well uh, because in a standard house you have so many thermal bridges it's hard to do that without literally building a separate house inside the existing house and uh, that's not very efficient in that case it would just be better to make sure that you're airtight as possible and uh, you have a good enough solar system to you know, run the loads and maybe add some additional cooling and additional heating throughout the year. But at the end of the day, the answer to your question, Eric, is don't put a solar system in without a battery if you plan on using it for what you describe as a critical load. It's just not a good idea. However, you can do the calculation. If you're designing the system for your house, you can do the calculation on what the draw is for all of these components that you're going to have as critical loads. You can put those loads on a sub-panel. You can put an inverter in between your main panel and your sub-panel. Have the grid power supplement the inverter through to the sub-panel uh, when you need to do that. And then in the event that the grid is off, instead of pulling from the main panel, it'll pull from the batteries and from the uh, solar system. So very, you could do this with a very small system. Your specific calculations will be based on what you do, uh, but don't try to do it without a battery. It's just not a good idea, especially in Ohio, where you're going to get some humidity you have to deal with, uh, as well as significant um, need to move air during the winter and the middle of summer. All right, well, with that, guys, um, send more questions in. I'll keep getting them answered. I've got a few in the bank uh, for Jack, but uh, I want to keep going with that. And as I record this on the 27th of July, uh, one of the largest power interconnections in the company has just declared an emergency uh, due to the heat, which I mentioned about a month ago. Uh, we would have a problem. We would start seeing those kind of issues this summer. So uh, go listen to the generator show that Jack and I did. If you don't already have a generator to help you understand what you might need so that you can at least cool a portion of your house in the event that the grid in your area is unreliable. All right, guys, have a great one. Thank you. All I'll add in this is that I would never do solar without battery. Just never, um, period. I might go smaller with the bank due to cost. And the reason that somebody would even think this way is simply that solar panels have gotten really cheap per watt. Batteries, not as much. It is, it is now the case that in a lot of situations, installing uh, a, a solar power system, you'll put more money in the batteries than you will into the panels. 
In fact, you'll, you'll put more money into the, 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 the batteries than the panels, the wiring, like all of it. Like That's the number one place that money dies in one of these systems. But there's a reason uh, that people pay for it, and that's because of the ability to continue to have power when the sun ain't shining and the grid ain't working. And so you can always expand that. And this is the other thing I would say. If you're designing a system in a new build or something like that, I would plan for the future and I would design like wherever you have your service area to be expandable to more batteries, a lot more batteries in the future. Have the space available is what I'm saying. Anyway, with that, let's talk about CBDCs, also known as central bank digital currencies, and how are they different from the fact that we pretty much do almost all of our business and transactions electronically anyway over like the boomer payment networks, which is the credit card system, or ACH, which is also the, another form of the boomer payment network. This is the point that, that 95% or more of all the money that we spend already has an electronic trail behind it anyway. And I think most Americans don't like it, but they accept it. But see, it's not it's not that there isn't a record. That's not, you know, when you do cash and and it's, it's hidden therefore that is the only thing at play here. There are, you know, thousands of banks in the country. And when I say banks, I don't mean bank locations. I mean like, you know, named banks. There's credit unions, etc. It's a very dis- decentralized piece of a centralized economic system. There's also a lot of different uh, issuing banks behind Visa's, MasterCard's, and the credit debit versions thereof, right? And then you have, you know, Amex and everything. So there's just very disjointed thing going on. And then banks, you know, for all the crap we give them, they're not real big on the government just saying, hey, we want all your information. They tend to push back on that. So right now, if if you are individually being investigated, then yes, the, the, they can find out whatever financial relationships you have with institutions and, and, and put in a request for information about you and say, we want Mr. Smith's uh, account information from this period to this period because he's the subject of an ongoing investigation, get a judge to sign. But they pretty much have to do that. The other way your information ends up in their hands is what's known as a SAR, Suspicious Activity Report. So sometimes if you do a transaction that's over a certain amount or a certain number of transactions or whatever, somebody at the bank may fill that out and submit that to the government, but that's also disjointed. So now imagine that it doesn't work that way. Imagine that every single transaction that every single person does is immediately beamed to a centralized database for the government, and the government then can dump that into all types of analytical programs to look for anything that it wants. And if you, if you just at the level of a spreadsheet, let me explain how good a good analyst can be with something totally unrelated to this. I used to work with a company called Sage Telecom, and we defined some specific parameters within the database to look for customers that would be good for a specific add-on product. I, I won't get into the details. Just understand that. And understand that when you looked at it on the surface, it's like there's no way that you can look at these customers and decide that these are the ones that would fit this add-on product. 
But what we did is we randomly selected 50,000 of them, and then we told our, one of our data analysts to give us the 50,000 that he thought were best. And then we sent an email, a single email, to both groups. And the group that the analysts selected outperformed the random group by about 11x on orders. 11 times more people ordered the product from the, uh, the, the, the data rate group that the analysts selected. Now you imagine that was a relatively small telecom carrier. Um, you know, the, their entire group of data analysts for marketing were two people, and one guy did that. Okay, pretty young guy, too. Kind of his first big job. He had about a year of experience on the job, and he was able to do that that well. Now take the United States government's uh, skill set and you know, understand that that was 20 years ago almost now. Uh, probably was 20 years ago now. And you have the latest technology. you got artificial intelligence, and all that data can be raked over by staffs of people like this guy Tim uh, on a daily basis to look for whatever they want to find. So it's not just that alarms go off. It's like, well, you know, where do we believe this activity that we don't like is happening the most? Because even with the centralized nature of this database, it's not like you can just know everything instantly because, well, it's just too much data. But the analysis that can be done on it to drill down and find groups of people or areas to control is insane. Now, can they do that now? To a degree, but again, you know, it's not like every bank is just willing to give them all this information, and, and frankly, the banks don't have to. But with a central bank digital currency, the information will just be there. Now, let's look at other things. Let's say that they decided you were a bad boy and you don't need to spend your money. They can put a freeze on your bank accounts and your assets. Or if somebody files a lawsuit against you, they may be able to get a temporary freeze on some of your assets. That's, that's true. But what if somebody just decided right away that there were certain things that they just didn't want bought anymore? Our government just decided, well, we won't make it illegal. We'll just make it where you can't spend your money on it if you're using our money. Well, they can just basically disable the ability for people to spend it on certain categories of goods. The other thing they can do, that, like there's no way to literally do this right now, uh, they can destroy money. Now, on the macro, they can destroy money because when debts are paid, money is destroyed. If, if debt is the birth of dollars, then the repayment of death, or, or debt is the, the, the death of dollars. But they can't say... You know, Bill, you, you, you're, you're saving too much. You, you, you need to spend your money or you need to get on with giving it to somebody else. With a CBDC, they could do that. They could just basically have expiration dates on money. You think that's not possible? They already do it in China. China already has that. They, they already have money that expires. Now, it's, it's money that is given out in social programs. And this is how you can sell a CBDC to the conservative side of the uh, of the the voters. You can say, well, you know, we don't really need a CBD for everything, but what if we had a CBDC for like things that are like EBT EBT cards and things like that? And then we could determine if somebody was cheating the system and selling their credits so they can buy drugs, for instance, because we would know where that money was spent and on what. Things like that. 
Now, I have an actual place that I think this type of tracking technology should be implemented yesterday, but not on the people of the public and the companies of the world, the government itself. I think this is a fantastic, I think this is exactly what they should do, that the, all the federal government spending and all the state's individual spending at the state level and all local government should all be subject to this, and we should, we as taxpayers should be able to see where all the money went. That'd be interesting just to look at the money that we sent to Ukraine right now, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Who received it when it was spent? When it was spent again, where the money went after it was spent the first time? See, that's what they would be able to do. They wouldn't just be able to tell you that you spent the money here. But you spent it with Bill, and Bill spent it with Tom, and Tom spent it with, with Lila. Traced and tracked all the way through in real time. I think it's great for government. I don't think it's so good for us. They would be able to shut off anybody or everybody's ability to spend money at any time. This will be implemented in the United States, which is a little more difficult to do than in a lot of other countries in the world, including a lot of the rest of the West, through voluntary programs. What they'll initially do is some sort of stimulus. Because trust me, we're going to have times in the not-so-distant future where the politicians are going to say, we need STEMI checks again. But the STEMI checks... What they'll say is you have to have your bank create a wallet for you to get it deposited, not into your account like we did before. We need to get this done in a different way. This is to be far more expedient. And we only want people who really need it to have it. So it'll come with like a 30-day time or something like that. And they'll give you money if you accept it. And if you don't, eventually you'll have no choice. But once they get a certain number of people to accept it, then it's on like Donkey Kong. And they're going to do this. And they're going to be able, again, to throttle what you can spend, where you can spend, how you can spend it, know everything that you did, collect so much data about the American people, and implement so much control that it's horrifying, actually. And so I said I wouldn't make this a Bitcoin segment. I'm not going to tell you to buy Bitcoin, but I will say this. What is your solution? What is your solution to this? The fact that they're going to digitize the dollar to the point where you don't have another option. And it will probably also be part of some form of debasement and rebasement of the dollar as a whole, which will be extremely inflationary at the time that it occurs. What is your plan? I hope you have one. But do not think that it's just a different version of what we already have, or the, the, the end of cash. Like, that's all that it is, is the end of cash. It is so much worse. It is a tool with which you can control the world. That's why they want to do it. There is no other reason. It's not because, well, we need a system that works better than the one we have. I agree with that. You know, what they're saying now is like, well, Fed now, you know, that allows interbank transfers. We talked about that. But, you know, 24-7, 365, you know, with regular ACH systems, you can only do that, you know, during business hours. Well, just change that. That's not hard to do. It's all an excuse, and it's all a, a bait and switch, and it's it's going to be all very, very inherently evil. Because as I said in my, my intro, do you think the government will not use a form of control that it has available to it? And the answer is, of course they, they will use it. Of course they will. Look at what has been done to people over the years in a lesser oppressive system. What do you think they're going to do when they get this much power? 
They can outright ban the sale of any category of good by simply denying the ability for the payer to spend the money and the receiver to receive the money. And then what they'll do is they'll consider it federal counterfeiting, even though you're not producing money, if you transfer the funds for something that's not the actual transfer. And that's a very highly punishable crime in the United States, counterfeiting. Only the government and the central banks are allowed to counterfeit, not us. So what I'm saying is the way that you would think is a get-around is like, you want to buy a gun for me, and I instead say that I am selling you uh, metal and wood, right? And those are under the approved categories, right? And let's not go with a gun. Let's go something that's a little less regulated. Let's say they decide that uh, people don't need meat anymore, and I sell you potato chips uh, toward part of your meat allowance, but it's actually ground beef. Yeah, they'll throw us both in prison for that. That's the kind of shit we're talking about here. So you had better figure out a plan B, and I would suggest also a plan C. Because some people are like, well, I just won't use this. At some point, you're going to use it somewhat because it's going to be your only option. And so you better have other plans or you're going to 100% use it. And that's because it, it would be like saying, I'm not using the dollar anymore. Okay. Let us know how that works out for you. You want a mortgage? You want a loan on a car? You want a loan for your business to expand? Do you? Because that's how much control... The old saying... I think it was one of the Rothschilds that said... No, it was Henry Kissinger. If you control the food, you control the people. If you control energy, you can control a continent. If you control the money, you can control the world. That's the goal here. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up. Let me remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do... You can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day, I've brought this around a couple times in the last couple weeks. People keep buying them. There's been more than 100 of them bought now. And it's the galvanized metal raised garden beds. These are 8 foot long, 4 foot wide, 2 foot deep. They ship in a pretty small box relative to that size because they come in panels that you simply bolt together. That's pretty easy. It's certainly something anybody can do. But basically, they look like a great big oval stock tank with no bottom. These make fantastic garden beds, whether they're ornamentals or edibles or what have you. It's a pretty standard raised bed width and length. Most of my raised beds are four foot wide. They're generally longer than eight foot, but... They're four foot wide. It is kind of the perfect uh, double reach from each side size. Again, over a hundred of these have been bought in the last two weeks. Number of complaints I've received about them, zero. That tells me everything I need to know. I'm still trying to work out. My wife is like, yeah, those look cool. Where we would put one? Because we've got so many beds built already. We don't really need any more. But I kind of want to do a thing with a couple cattle panels and them spaced about six foot apart and arches in the middle and... I think it would be really cool. So uh, get them while you can. They are on sale. They're still 22% off. I don't know how long it's going to last. And there's a $10 additional coupon per order. And uh, I'm betting if you want to, you could probably place two separate orders on two separate days since they ship for free and reuse the coupon more than once. But I'm not sure of that. 
I'm not sure of that. If anybody figures that out, let me know. Because sometimes they'll track things like that, and they won't offer you the coupon on a follow-up order. Anyway, with that, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. And I have one more announcement for you. I kind of said this before, but I put out uh, the announcement today, two of them really, on the blog. First of all, Romero Romani of Above Phone, who was on with me last week, has joined the expert council. So he can answer all types of questions on privacy, uh, applied technology, uh, anything like that, how to keep yourself safe, your data secure, how to avoid cell phone tracking and stuff like that. Uh, he, he has two websites, AbovePhone.com and Take Back Our Tech. You can check those out to learn more. Additionally, when we discuss things afterwards, uh, he's also now an official sponsor of the show, and they said we will also want to sponsor the MSB with a permanent discount for MSB members. That I've also announced today officially, even though I mentioned it on the show before, 75 bucks off any phone at AbovePhone.com. 75 bucks off. MSB membership is 50 bucks a year. So that one discount from one vendor is a 1.5 times return on your investment in a one-year membership. So if you've been thinking about getting an above phone and you're not an MSB member yet, you, you, you're literally cutting off your nose to spite your face by 25 bucks if you don't join the MSB and then get the discount for your above phone. Uh, I'm waiting for mine to come. I got the best one they make. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to this relationship with Above Phone and Romero. He's a great dude, very, very knowledgeable. We're lucky to have him on uh, the Expert Council. And I need some questions for him. Uh, so if you want to ask a question of the Expert Council for a show like today, put TSPC Expert in the subject line. Tell me who the question is for. Make your question a single sentence. Then hit return a couple times. Put some break in there. And then give me your details. And that way everybody knows what the question is, including you. Sometimes I think people send questions and they don't even know what they're asking. Uh, and it's much easier for us to determine uh, if we can answer the question for you, if we need to get somebody else, or if it's not something we can do. And uh, so please consider sending me some questions for Romero. I'd like to get a couple to him to get him out of the gate with a good start uh, as an expert council member. And again, if you're looking to upgrade your privacy and security on your phone, check out Above Phone and make sure you get the discount. I will be back on Monday with another show for you. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this let me show you a better way Revolution is you.